Yo, this is George Dr. Funkenstein Clinton, and you're listening to WMNF Tampa. They do the dog, y'all. Here comes the sun, doo-doo-doo. here comes the sun, I say it's all right. Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11 we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. Today we are talking with Dr. Mark Margras, Assistant Professor in the Department of Integrative Biology at USF about rattlesnake venoms and transmissible cancers. Today's going to be a scientific show. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, so am I. My name is Kenny Coogan, and joining me is the wonderful Annie Ellis. Oh, I'm wonderful today. And Irene is taking your calls, I think. (laughs) Nope. Nope, somebody is, though, huh? Oh, Bill's doing it all (gasps) today. Mr. Bill Grace is working the boards and taking your calls. He is the juggler today. (laughs) So, Annie, got any news? Any updates from this week? Well, um, you know, not really. I mean, I'm loving this cold, this uh, wonderful cold weather. That's so funny. It is cold to me, but I'm I'm really enjoying this, and I think everybody is. You know, we're all getting out there doing some gardening, things that we haven't been able to do for a while. Still waiting on the rain. Hadn't gotten that mm-hmm. for a while. Lots of vegetables are coming up. A lot of markets are opening back up too, y'all. I don't know if you if you do that, but you, it would be good if you did because then you can support your local farmers uh, and different folks like that. But every place is having like Saturday and Sundays uh, where they're selling, um, you know, different foods that they've grown, organic vegetables, and they have eggs and all kinds of things Uh You know, you'd have to go to see each one has something on a different level, but it's a good thing to do. Oh, they had the veg, uh, the veg fest this weekend and it was a huge success. A friend of mine went uh, and he's been, he was celebrating. He's been a vegetarian for 50 years. It was pretty exciting. Very cool. Yeah. So I wanted the sustainable living project to call in, but they haven't. Oh, okay. But uh, let's just support them. They're on... They're the best. Georgia. Georgia Snyder. She's right across from the Larry Park Zoo. Yeah, right across Zoo Tampa. Mm -hmm. And they have like five events coming up this weekend and next weekend. So check them out. They constantly have stuff going on too, y'all. How would they get in touch with them? How would they look for that? It's called the Sustainable Living Project. Mm-hmm. And we could look it them up. Probably be a dot com. Uh, or, yep. Or is it a dot org? It's slptampa.com. Okay. okay. And uh, I think she's going to call next Monday as well because they're having a Friendsgiving. Oh, that's so, nice. So uh, they're going to be talking. They're you're, they're going to you're going to eat vegetarian uh, meals. Okay. And I don't know a day, but I'm assuming the day after Thanksgiving. When I, I was uh, I lived in Hawaii, I uh, went to a Thanksgiving dinner and I made a turkey out of brown rice. And uh, I carved the little bones out of carrots and put them in there. It was so funny. <laughs> it was really good, though, too. I was just, you know, I sauteed mushrooms and onions and stuff like that mm-hmm. in it. It was funny. All right. Well, I didn't uh, mention this when it happened, but the very beginning of August, I was away, you know, just for the day from like 11 to 3. Yeah. And I came home and what ha- I had uh, nine chickens and three ducks. And I went, Had? yes, and this was the beginning of August and I came home and it appeared that two neighborhood dogs <gasps> came in oh, 
and no. they killed nine out of 11 of my birds. Oh my gosh, and, that happened to another friend and, of mine. And the too. bodies were everywhere, oh, and that's, that's why it happened during the day, and that's why I think it was dogs. So, oh, that's so sad. I had one duck and one chicken left, and uh, oh, like a week later, crushing. because I've been grow- raising birds for since forever. Yeah, 1998. As you were a child, yeah. Exactly. So I, I did get uh, four more young little baby ducks. Oh, you and, got more ducks this time. And guess what? What? I got three eggs today. From the, the ducks? Three out of four ducks laid their same first egg all day. They're just so happy there. <laughs> wow. Well, I've never had a duck egg. Is it stronger or what is it like? I, I would say it tastes the same. It's a little richer. Uh-huh. Darker yellow. Yeah, a little thicker. But nutritionally, they're very similar. Yeah, they're a little bigger too. So, but it's funny that they are in sync. Uh, it is. <laughs> they all decided to do that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about that fourth duck, freeloader? That's right. He's <laughs> looking for some extra goodies, or she yes. is looking for some extra goodies. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Uh, so, do you ever get a male duck with your ducks, or no? no? I purposely do not. Okay, so you don't want a a, a strand of. Uh, 10 little yeah. babies running around all the time that you yeah. have to deal with. Okay, that makes sense. Are you going to get some chickens? No more chickens. I'm really? out of the chicken business. Really? Yeah. Oh. It's, it's easier to, for me, my property, it's easier to raise the ducks. We have the water there too, yeah. so that's good. Oh, well, I'm so sorry to hear that. That happened to another friend of mine as well. I know people think so you got to protect them from hawks and uh, raccoons and Everything. opossums, but people don't really think about the domestic dog too much. Well, until it happens to you, mm-hmm. and then you then you do know, because it's, you know, people are not supposed to let their animals out like that, and sometimes it's not their fault. They escaped in some way, you know, but, yeah. yeah. It happened to my friend twice. Mm-hmm. Depends on and where you... And, you know, she has dogs, and she's such a lovely human that she didn't do anything about it. You know, a lot of harsh suggestions mm-hmm. were made to manage those animals that belong to someone else, and she she wouldn't do it. So good for her. All right. So today we're going to be talking about rattlesnake venom and cancers and Tasmanian devils. I know. Speaking I'm so of excited. interesting animals, Tasmanian devils. <laughs> you always get that cartoon yes. of the guys swirling through. I was going to ask Bill if you can do an impersonation of Taz. Is that the Tasmanian, Tasmanian devil? devil? That's what it is, but yeah. no, I, I don't. Know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's what it is. Yeah, kind of, sort of. I can see if we've got it in our uh, sound effects. Oh, that'd be fun, yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, there he is. Yeah, that's Taz, so Taz the Tasmanian Devil. All right, yeah. Annie, want to introduce our guest? Uh, sure. <laughs> so so we, can learn about, we can learn about the real the animal, real not the cartoon. And all of our play-like stuff. So uh, I am uh, going to introduce our lovely guest today, Dr. Mark Margris, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, and I want to tell you about him a little bit. He earned his PhD in biology from Florida State University in 2016, where he studied venom evolution in island rattlesnakes. That's just an interesting phrase. Uh, then he moved to Harvard University as the uh, Sarah and Daniel Hardy Fellow in uh, conservation biology, where he studied how multiple mutations affect tumor growth and transmission in the Tasmanian devil facial tumor disease. He was at Harvard University until he joined the, uh, the faculty at the University of South Florida 
in fall of 2020, where his lab continues to study both snake venom evolution, particularly in island rattlesnakes here in Florida and abroad and transmittable cancer. I didn't know that our rattlesnakes were called uh, island rattlesnakes. Well, thank, uh, welcome to the show. We're glad you're here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks. Uh, so, Mark, since I just said that, I want to know that answer. So, uh, what are island rattlesnakes, and why? I mean, is that the only kind of rattlesnake we have here in Florida? No. So, uh, the island rattlesnakes—it's just species that live here on the mainland as well. They also live on islands, and I focus on the populations that are found on islands uh, for a number of reasons. Right? They've been sort of studied since, you know, the time of Darwin Island Service, these model systems for evolutionary biologists, because there's, there are these natural experiments that have been set up and run for us. Um, so no, the, the snakes that I found on islands, the same type of snake can be found on the mainland as well. I just choose to study island populations in Florida and in Mexico. Well, that's really interesting. You know, we have this new thing that we're doing, so I need to announce this. Uh, and now, <laughs> a few seconds uh, for our supporters and underwriters at the Tampa Bay Times who help make this show and WMNF possible. And you can show your support by going to WMNF.org and tapping on the donate button. Okay, then we got our business. Now, is there support else? for WMNF comes from listeners like you and the Times Festival of Reading on Saturday, November 11th. The festival brings authors writing about today's compelling topics and most read fiction for discussions about their books. This year, the Times Festival of Reading will be at the Palladium in St. Petersburg. More information at festivalofreading.com. That's one word, festivalofreading.com. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, that was clumsy. This is the first time we've done that. So, uh, we're... Figuring it out as we go. Live radio. You know how that is. So uh, so let's just get back to you, Mark. Uh, so, yeah, that makes it sound, that's really interesting because, yeah, in any kind of an island situation, it's going to evolve into its own thing and there's no outside input from it. So it doesn't change like that. So uh, what does uh, rattlesnake venom and cancer in the Tasmanian devils, though, have to do with each other? Yeah, my research in my lab, we really are interested in how different species interact with each other mm -hmm. right now, whether that's a rattlesnake on an island and the rat that it needs to eat or a Tasmanian devil and this really weird species-specific transmissible cancer that they have, um, you know, that creates these sort of host pathogen dynamics. It's really all about how species interact with one another. That's really the focus of my lab. You know, whether that's a cheetah and a gazelle or a rattlesnake and a rabbit, you know, it at the genetic level, which is where my lab mostly focuses, um, it, it can be pretty similar. So does that mean that the the, the Tasmanian devil's um, cancer, is that something that other animals can get as well? Or is that something that's just for it? And does that venom have something to do with helping with it? So the Tasmania devil cancer, it does not infect other species. Okay. Um, as far as we know, uh, it cannot jump species boundaries. So transmissible cancers are really strange um, and they're kind of rare. We, we think um, there's some evidence that suggests they may be more common. We just haven't looked. Um, but right now there's really only three that are known. So there's uh, the Tasmanian devil disease. There's actually one in dogs um, that's oh. pretty common. It's sexually transmitted. Um, but 
Treatment there is pretty effective. You take your dog to your vet. It presents itself as sort of these tumors around the genitalia. You take your, you take your dog to your, you know, your local vet. They treat it. You know, has a very good success rate. Um, there's a recently discovered one in bivalves, so mostly in clams. We don't know that much about it. Um, but all of them, they kind of function as skin grafts. So you can imagine, you know, it's just these tumor cells that are jumping from one individual to another through dogs. That's transmitted, you know, during sexual encounters. For Tasmanian devils, it's actually when they bite each other. So, you know, they're scavengers. They like to find dead wallabies and kangaroos around the landscape and have that for dinner. And when they interact with one another, you know, the biggest, baddest devil will, you know, try to scare off the others and bite and when a healthy devil will actually bite the tumor of an infected devil, some cells are transmitted, like a skin graft, um, and they're able to stick to that devil's face and then grow uncontrollably. Um, and the really sad part about that is typically within six months that of presenting symptoms, that devil dies. Oftentimes from starvation, the tumor just gets so large that the devil can't eat. Um, and all devils are susceptible to this. We don't really have any evidence of resistance. So, you know, if a devil is exposed to this disease, it's going to get the disease and likely die within a year. It's going to go straight to hell. <laughs> I had to say that. Sorry. Um, so, Mark, in the beginning, we were talking about Taz, the Tasmanian devil. Can you just describe what a real Tasmanian devil looks like? <laughs> yeah. Imagine a black and white chunky possum that's covered in fur. So, uh, yeah, actually, I don't know if, you know, my video is going to be up. There's a picture of one, right? Right, right here behind me. Um, but they're marsupials, so they're closely related to, you know, our American possums. Um, but they're the size, I would say, of a medium-sized dog. I think about 10 oh, kilos. that big. Big male, big male will top out. Yeah, so around 20 pounds or so is a big adult. Um, but they're actually kind of cute. They, uh, they have a really bad reputation because of the sounds that they make. So those sounds really terrified early settlers when they heard those noises in the middle of the night. Um, but having seen them and interacted with, with the animals, they're pretty docile. Their actually main defense mechanism when you trap them is flatulence. They just fart about <laughs> Um Yeah, it's strange. But, I know uh, people like that. Too. Yeah, yeah. But, no, they're they're kind of cute, cuddly animals. Uh, I would say much more aesthetically pleasing than our than our possums here in the in the states. Weirdly, though, all the pictures that they ever show are with their mouth <laughs> wide open, with their teeth completely bared, so they look awful. If you look up the Virginia opossum, most of their those photos have their mouths open too. Yeah, so it's yeah. just you know they get them in a bad view. Is that yeah. I guess what it is, right? So, Mark, your lab focuses, I think, on genomics. Can you tell us what that means? Yeah, so, you know, over the last couple of decades, technology has now allowed us to start sequencing, you know, genomes. And genomes are essentially just the, the four bases, the A, T, Cs, and Gs that comprise our DNA and essentially the, the instructions of life. Um, and really what I study is how variation in the genome affects how species interact with each other. That's really what my lab focuses on. So, you know, we look at rattlesnake genomes and how variation in the genome can lead to maybe a different venom that is more toxic to a particular prey item. And then conversely, how mutations in the prey lead to maybe venom resistance. And then the same thing in the Tasmanian devil system, how maybe some changes to the Tasmanian devil genome can allow them to maybe tolerate the disease a bit better. They're still getting infected, but there seems to be some evidence that they're able to get the disease and maybe not get as sick maybe live a little bit longer, right? Or then conversely, how mutations in the tumor itself can affect, you know, how virulent or how deadly it is to a particular devil. 
So they're getting a resistance, uh, and it's going in uh, their DNA. So then as they pass that to the next animal that they father or mother, then that's going to improve their chances to survive that? Is that what you're yeah, talking so about? Yeah, they are heritable changes, uh, so they both pass it on to their offspring, but they are not resistant. What we're actually seeing evidence for is tolerance. So if you're resistant to a disease, you won't get it, right? So if I was resistant to the flu, I wouldn't get the flu, right? What we're seeing with them is tolerance. So they're still getting the disease, but rather than dying in three months or four months, perhaps they're living for 12 or 14 months, and that allows them to get another breeding cycle, make more babies, Right. And that can be very beneficial and increase their fitness. You were also talking about uh, the rattlesnakes. Did you did you say or did I mistake this, that there uh, some of the rattlesnakes there, uh, the potency of their venom uh, is stronger than others? Yeah. So there's a lot of variation in in venom. That Pretty is much, interesting. I did not know that. If you collect, let's take the eastern diamondback rattlesnakes. So that's, you know, um, the species that lives throughout the entirety of Florida one of the species folks are likely to see, you know, around here in the Tampa area. If you collect an eastern diamondback rattlesnake from here, from Tallahassee, and from the Everglades, all of them will have different venoms. So their venom seems to change very, very quickly, and it seems to be driven mostly by diet. And what my lab is now trying to figure out is whether what they're eating is actually evolving resistance to that venom, and are we getting in sort of these arms races, right, where snakes have to make more and more toxic venom to sort of combat the ever-increasing resistance of the rats or the rabbits or squirrels that they're eating. Wow. Yeah, that's what I was curious about. Why is the rattlesnake venom so toxic and so strong if they only have to kill like a tiny mouse or a rabbit? But I guess my real question is why is it, is it really just strong for humans? Is that what we're worried about? Yeah, so most of the time when we're thinking about how toxic a venom is, we're thinking about it in, in terms of humans. And, you know, Rattlesnakes did not evolve to cause damage to human predators, right? That is not the point of the venom, right? The point of the venom is for them to kill a particular prey item, to eat it. Um, so really, to measure toxicity, you have to do it in what we call the correct ecological context, right? Or sort of in the animal in which, you know, the venom has evolved to function. So for eastern diamondback rattlesnakes, if we take their venom and I inject it into a lab mouse, um, the way we measure toxicity is something called the LD50. And essentially it measures the amount of venom it takes to kill half of a group of mice in a set time period. And the lower the number, the more toxic the venom, right? So for Eastern Diamondbacks and lab mice, the LD50 is two. So it's a pretty toxic venom. But if you collect cotton rats, their main prey item in North Florida, and measure it there, it's 200. Oh my right? goodness. So the natural prey that they live with are 100 times more resistant to venom than lab mice are. Wow, that is so, very interesting. So, you know, they need all the, uh, there, there was a, a line of thought a long time ago, something called the overkill hypothesis, that these venomous snakes, they have so much venom and it's so deadly that it shouldn't need to vary because it will kill anything no matter what, because every venom that we collect and measure is very toxic to things like lab mice. But as we're beginning to do this in the correct ecological context, we're learning that it may be really toxic to lab mice or it may be bad for you and me, um, but, you know, a 100-gram cotton rat is actually fairly resistant to that venom. That's interesting. Just uh, made me think of something. So if, if a, a rat was uh, killed by the venom of the rattlesnake and the rattlesnake didn't, something happened and it disturbed him, if another animal ate that rat or that mouse, would they uh, die or get sick from the venom? 
No. So venom, uh, this is a distinction I often teach about in my herpetology course here at, at USF. So venom has to be injected to have its effects, okay. right? So we can take a shot of venom. You'll absorb a little bit through like your mucosal membranes in your mouth and things like that. Your mouth and tongue may feel strange for a little bit. I don't encourage anyone to do this, right? But uh, the <laughs> Just enzyme, a full of venom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the, the enzymes in your gut uh, sort of shut off those proteins rather quickly, right? So that's really the difference between venom and poison. If it bites you and causes harm, it's venomous. If you bite it and it causes harm, it's poisonous. So no, if, if a bird came along, a red-shouldered hawk came along and tried to steal that rat before the snake could get to it, the hawk would be fine. That is fascinating. I love this show. <laughs> <laughs> we learned so much stuff. <laughs> so Mark, can you tell us, you said uh, Eastern Diamondback, what uh, other species of rattlesnakes do we have here in Florida? So we have six venomous species total. So we have the Eastern Diamondback rattlesnakes. That's the largest species of rattlesnake in the world. Um, they're found throughout the entire state. We have timber rattlesnakes, which are just found in the northeastern part of the state. They come about as far south as Micanopy, just south of Gainesville. Um, we have uh, pygmy rattlesnakes. So these are really common in some places. I know folks in my neighborhood see them around their yards all the time. Um, they're called pygmy rattlesnakes. They don't get terribly large. You know, a big adult's about two feet. Um, but they're also found throughout the entirety of the state. So those are the three rattlesnakes that we have here in Florida. Uh, we also have eastern coral snakes, which live throughout the entirety of the state. Cottonmouths or water moccasins, which live throughout the entirety of the state. And then in a couple select portions of the northern part of the state up in the panhandle, we actually have copperheads in Florida. Um, so in the Apalachicola Basin and then kind of uh, closer over towards Pensacola we have copper. So well. I just want to interrupt this just because all the things that you just talked about were all the venomous <laughs> snakes. And we have a lot more snakes here in Florida, too, that people overreact to. Right. Uh, and so do you know anything about that? I mean, what could they people do? do? Do they take a picture of it and go online and check it out? Or do they report it to somebody or how do they manage that without trying to kill everything in sight? So the best thing to do with any snake that you see, especially if you're unsure as to what it is, just to leave it alone. Yes. Right. It will move on. Um, I would say the vast majority of people that are bitten by snakes are trying to kill them. Right. Like a rattlesnake cannot bite you if you stay five feet away from it. It just <laughs> Makes can't. Sense. Um, so, you know, if you have one on your lanai or your front porch or something like that, you know, squirting it with a hose and getting it to move along um, is something that that's pretty safe to do. You can do that from a distance. Uh, but no one who is not trained should be interacting with any snake. Um, you know, obviously we have lots of corn snakes and rat snakes and black racers and non-venomous snakes that are pretty common around people's homes. And but good ones to have around because they get rodents. All snakes are good to have around. Oh, I'll right? listen to you. All, all, <laughs> snakes, all snakes are, are good to have around. Um, they all play important parts in our ecosystem. Lots of them do pest control. Uh you know, we can talk about this a little bit later, but, you know, venom does have some anti-cancer properties. It's used in pharmaceutical development. If you have high blood pressure, if you've had a stroke, you may have taken a protein that was identified from snake venom. So um, the, there's lots of utilities to venomous snakes. They should not be killed. It's becoming a problem here in Florida, obviously, with all the development that is occurring. Mm -hmm. um, just people and snakes are coming into contact with one another much more frequently than they have in the past. Um, 
But really, there's no reason to ever try to kill a snake. All you are doing is placing yourself in danger. That's how you can get bit. If you leave it alone, it cannot bite you. Yeah. People are always, anytime they ever do it, they always say, well, I have a toddler and I don't want my, <laughs> you know, my baby to get bit. And I'm thinking that's probably chances are slim and none on that. I have two kids under three and uh -huh. I live in a neighborhood. I have caught two Eastern Diamondback rattlesnakes in my driveway. And you um, did nothing. You just looked at them. Yeah, moving them all the way. That's wonderful. Right? I love to hear that. And a hose, that's a great idea. Just hit them with a hose because it's a far away distance and you can manage that further than five feet. Exactly. That's a great idea. You are listening to the Sustainable Living Show coming to you from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Today we're talking with Dr. Mark Margras, Assistant Professor in the Department of Integrative Biology at USF about rattlesnake venoms and transmissible cancers in Tasmanian devils. If you want to be part of the show, send us an email at dj at wmnf.org, and we will read it on air. So, Mark, uh, you, you won a National Geographic grant that focused on island biogeography and how it could guide conservation practices. Can you tell the listeners what island biogeography is? Sure. So it's this foundational ecological theory from the 60s um, that essentially says that islands that are closer to the mainland should have more species than islands that are further away. And it's for a number of reasons that are related to the probability that a species goes extinct or persists on the island that we don't need to get into. But essentially, bigger, closer islands should have more species than smaller islands that are further away from the mainland, further away from their source population. Um, this was actually validated here in, in the Florida Keys. So MacArthur and Wilson, they did some, some pretty neat stuff. Those are the guys that came up with uh, this theory. And they did some extermination experiments in the Keys where they actually would go in, remove essentially all the animals from these tiny mangrove islands in the Keys, and then actually watch as new species arrived and counted how many species could persist in this little island of mangrove. Um, but how that relates to, to conservation is that we're trying to use islands as proxies for habitat fragmentation, right? So as humans continue to develop the earth, we are fragmenting habitats more and more and more. And really what we are interested in understanding is what are the important characteristics of habitats that we need to conserve? Is it size? Is it how close they are to another fragment of habitat? Is it connectivity between those fragments? So we can use islands and this island biogeography theory to sort of test that and then make predictions about the types of habitats that we should conserve and how we should conserve them. So if you, I'm just thinking, if you have animals that continually interact with each other in the same, you know, brother and sister and so on and so on, isn't that going to... Uh, degenerate their the gene pool? Uh, wouldn't they need to have a, a broader area that they can uh, go to to be able to mate and have a, a different bloodlines introduced? Is that is that real or is that something I'm just making up? No. So the amount of, we call that genetic variation, right? So the amount of genetic variation within a population is really important. We saw that, you know, with the Florida panther when genetic variation right. got so low. Right, right. They really started having reproductive issues, and we had to bring in some cougars from Texas to sort of increase the amount of genetic variation in that population. Um, so what we're trying to study on these islands is figuring out, well, what's most important for increasing genetic variation? Is it just the size, right? Because if we have a bigger habitat, there's more animals, more genetic variation, right? 
But is that more important than making sure that it's connected to another population, right? Or is that more important than the age at which this habitat has been protected, right? And that's what island biogeography theory and our experiments on islands in Mexico we're hoping can inform us so we can determine what is most important for essentially preserving the evolvability of imperiled species. That makes so much sense because it's already done on the island for you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So we have islands that are big. We have islands that are small. We have mm-hmm. islands that are young and old. We have islands that are close or far, right? So we have all these natural experiments that have already been run for us so we can see how genetic variation of those snake populations really varies and then use that to make predictions about what we should do, say here, in Florida and the U.S. and, you know, really anywhere in a mainland system. So glad you're doing this. All right, Mark, you got a couple of emails, but let's uh, finish up the island biogeography first. So looking at the islands near Mexico and comparing it to the mainland, how does knowing about what you saw on the islands, how would that affect the conservation status or efforts of the snakes on the island compared to the mainland? Yeah, so a lot of, so that there's about 20 islands that, that we work on in the Gulf of California. So this is, you know, on the east coast of the Baja California Peninsula. Um, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. It really is an awesome place. And a lot of these islands, they have endemic species or endemic populations. The rattlesnakes that live there are very different than the types of rattlesnakes that you see on the mainland, right? So part of what we're doing is trying to figure out, you know, why they're different, how they're different, things like that. But again, the the overarching goal, which we're currently working on, so I have a graduate student, Sam Hershesh, shout out to Sam. Um, this is the focus of his dissertation project, is trying to figure out how those snakes are different, how they are changing, and if they are changing in a way that we can sort of predict, then maybe we can use that information to better help on the mainland, right? So this is all still sort of work that is ongoing and currently being done. So I don't have an answer for you yet, but you yeah. guys can have me back show in three or four years and maybe I'll <laughs> it had to start right. somewhere yeah. right all right mark your emails are going up you <laughs> got one from tom fillion of tampa mark the largest diamondback i've ever seen was on the number six green on the south course at mcdill air force base we let it play though oh that was <laughs> nice all right jerome says can your guest enlighten us on venom versus venom please venom mm-hmm. oh Mark, do you know uh, what venom is? <laughs> my my guess there is that they're referring to anti-venom versus anti-venin. So there's sort of two different ways to say that. And the anti-venin is just a historical artifact of how it's said in, in another language. They are the same thing. So whether you get anti-venom or anti-venin, it, it, it's... It's a the, different century or a different country, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. And then we got one more email. It's from Pete in Indian Shores. He said he saw someone with a rattlesnake museum shirt on yesterday. And apparently in Arizona, you can get big money for catching venomous snakes. Is that to extract the venom or to remove them? What do you think, Mark? Um, So there's... There, there are sort of pest removal companies, right? You can even mm. do that here in Florida. You can call someone to come remove a rattlesnake. I don't know how well that pays. Um, the anti-venom market is pretty cornered, and they, so, uh, it's called Crofab, and they're doing it pretty well. I don't think they need to purchase venom from a bunch of outside sources. They have their own snake facilities yeah. with thousands of snakes that they're 
collecting venom from daily to, you know, sort of make and produce their, their anti-venom at a commercial scale. They don't need any wild snakes to brought in. <laughs> they have all their ones that they've hatched out, probably. So, yes and no. Okay. Um, so anti-venom, it's essentially antibodies against the venom proteins. And the way it's made is you collect venom from a bunch of snakes, you inject it in microdoses into a livestock animal. We used to use horses. They found that we can have pretty severe allergic reactions to horse serum. Um, so now we use sheep. Uh, apparently sheep, we, you know, the, the risk of anaphylactic shock is severely reduced. So you inject these micro doses of venom into sheep over long periods of time. And just like exposure to any foreign agent in their body, they start to develop antibodies to them. We then can isolate those, purify them, clean them up. And then that's what you would receive at the hospital if you were bitten by a venomous snake. Um, but it's only good, you know, it's only effective against the types of proteins that are used to produce it, right? So our anti-venom here in the United States, it's polyvalent. And what that means is it's made from the venom of multiple species, five different species that sort of encompass the variation of venom that you would see. So it'll work whether you get bit by a snake in Arizona or in Miami, the same anti-venom here in the United States will work well against both. Um, but if you're a private collector here in Florida and you get bit by a cobra that you keep in your house, it will not work. Um, so variation really matters there. And we've actually worked with that, that company about uh, eight or nine years ago when I was a graduate student. Um, as I mentioned, venom varies even within a species substantially. And what they found was that they were using eastern diamondbacks to make their anti-venom, but mostly from South Florida. And we published a paper that showed that the snakes from down there lacked a toxin that was the most common toxin from snakes found in North Florida. So they wanted you know, to work with us to get some locations and some animals so they could start including those types of venoms in their production line to make sure that the Eastern Diamondback rattlesnake bit you in you know, Tallahassee, that it would work just as well as against the bite from Miami. That is fascinating. So uh, I have a question. Since you said that about the cobra, so then every snake, like if you had a, uh, a copperhead or a cobra or anything like that that bit you that was you know, poisonous, do you, you have to have a specific antivenom from that particular snake to be able to survive. Is that correct? Maybe um, not state, maybe the species. I went to Thailand many years ago, and after like the 20-hour flight, we took the taxi from the airport to the Red Cross uh, snake venom facility, oh. and they milk. They like, I Black don't know. Mamas. I'm going to make this up, but Thailand is like 20 different venomous snakes, and they had all of them on display, and they milked them multiple times a week, and it was right next to the uh, hospital. Oh, and, right next but, door. But they would show like how we. You know how they did, and they had cobras and tree snakes, and it was really interesting. Well, so so to answer the question, then, uh, Mark, is that something they have to do? Do they have to uh, get the specific venom uh, or anti-venom for that specific snake to make this person survive? And so they need to know what snake bit them, right? So again, we make what's called a polyvalent. So we make it for multiple species. Okay. That way, it'll against multiple species. So the way we make anti-venom in the United States is we use Western diamondback rattlesnakes, Eastern diamondback rattlesnakes, Mojave rattlesnakes, cottonmouths, and pygmy rattlesnakes. Okay, so you throw in the cottonmouth. By using all five of those, no matter what bites you here in the U.S., excluding coral snakes, any viper bites you, that anti-venom will work very well. 
Um, but some countries do make species specific antivenoms. It it's it really depends on the species that are there and how much money you have and how similar the venoms are. You know, so fortunately for us here in the United States, the the rattlesnakes and copperheads and cottonmouths, all their venoms are similar enough that we can make one antivenom that works well against all of them. Good to know. Um, but again, if you're in India and you have cobras and Russell vipers and these species that have really different venoms, you cannot possibly make one antivenom that will work well against both, right? You can make one that would kind of sort of work against each one, but that's not sort of the efficacy that you're looking for. Wow, that is fascinating. Uh, because of time, let's talk more about these Tasmanian devils because they're cute. Did we, do we have no call? Uh, not right now. Okay. Um, so you're, how often are you going to Tasmania? Yeah. <laughs> so pre-COVID and children, I was going about once a year. Um, I talk with my collaborators there about once a month, um, but I don't go as often as I would like. And you're studying the devil? Facial tumor disease, DFTD, and what is the Tasmanian devil's conservation status currently? Well, I believe they're they're critically endangered because of this disease. Um, so the disease was discovered in in 1996. So uh, some folks were trapping devils, and they started noticing these weird tumors popping up on their face. And at first, they really weren't that concerned about it. Devils, for some reason, they're prone to benign tumors, right, or neoplasias, you know, non-cancerous tumors. Um, But then researchers noticed very quickly that the disease was spreading, animals were dying in very large numbers, and this was certainly very different from any benign tumor they had seen before. Um, And populations crashed, you know, from a couple of our study sites. You know, pre-disease, you would have 150 happy devils living in a peninsula, and post-disease, you would have eight. (gasps) So you would see huge population crashes. And this led everyone to think that the Tasmanian devil was going to go extinct, right? That this was sort of their chytrid and this was going to be disease-driven extinction. Um, the good news is that no local extinction events have actually occurred. Even that population that I'm talking about that dropped to eight, it has rebounded and now has about 30 or 40 individuals. Um, so the devils have either seemed to sort of stabilize their numbers at lower numbers, or in some cases are actually the population is rebounding and increasing. So it seems that the disease was really nasty in the beginning, but they seem to, again, be evolving this tolerance and coping with it. Um, But they definitely are, you know, they're by no means out of the woods yet or anything like that. Uh, You know, it's definitely something that we need to continue to monitor. And then it was never discovered what caused it or what stimulated it to begin. That's the multi-million dollar question. So, So we know that it occurred in the northeastern part of the country. We actually know that it occurred in a female devil because they're, they're mammals, so they're like us. They have XY sex chromosomes, and the tumor, it only has pieces of the X chromosome. It lacks pieces of the Y. So we know it occurred in a, in a female Tasmanian devil in the northeastern part of the country. Or, I'm sorry, north northeastern part of the island, somewhere probably in the late 80s, early, early 90s. Um, you know, and since then, it has spread almost completely across the island. It's reduced the total population by 80%. So 80% of the devils that were alive pre-disease are gone. Wow. These huge changes in densities, which, you know, it's having these cascading effects, right? Like we saw in Yellowstone, right? You remove wolves from Yellowstone, lots of things can happen, right? And we're wondering if the same things are going to happen here in, in, in Tasmania. And then what perhaps is 
most unusual is that a second transmissible cancer has now evolved. So that was discovered about 10 years ago in the south central part of the island. And we know it's different because this tumor has pieces of the Y chromosome. So we know that this one appeared, you know, first in a male devil. And it's just, it's so crazy to me that, you know, there's only now four transmissible cancers known and two of them occur in the same organism that lives on one tiny island in the ocean. And you said you're not traveling as much as you used to to Tasmania. What can you do here in Tampa as you're not traveling? (laughs) You know, like what information are you getting? Are you getting samples of the cancer? Are you just communicating to the people in Tasmania? Are you still ongoing with that or are you focusing more on the rattlesnakes now? Yeah, no. So I actually have two active National Science Foundation grants focusing on the Tasmanian devil cancer system. Um, we have a really effective collaborative team. So we have some folks at the University of Tasmania, uh, Tasmania, Mena and Rodrigo, and they do most of the field work because they're there, right? So it's easiest for them to do the, the field work. Mena has been working on Tasmanian devils, I think longer than I have been alive. So, you know, she is the devil expert. She knows more about them than I ever will. Um, and essentially what they do is they will collect a bunch of samples and they ship them to me and my collaborator, uh, Dr. Andrew Storford, Washington State University. And we sequence the genomes of both Tasmanian devils and the cancer and then do our analyses to try to figure out, you know, what's going on, how they're interacting. Are there specific types of mutations that maybe exhibit cancer tolerance in devils? Because that's something that would have direct human relevance. And we've actually, one yes. mutation we've excited about that we published two years ago now we found a mutation in the cancer that led to spontaneous tumor regression so you know devils got sick they got the tumors they started growing but if a tumor had a specific mutation the tumor would shrink or sometimes entirely disappear all on its own no treatments no drugs and that is obviously something from a human perspective that is very important in, you know, in, in understanding. Yes. Uh, I wanted to ask you, too, in that, that you were talking about uh, that they are doing the field work. Are they trapping uh, live uh, devils and bringing them and, do, and then taking samples? Or is it all from uh, deceased animals? Or how does that work? Because I would think they'd need both. Both. Yeah. So if we get road kills, unfortunately, you know, we will take tissue samples from there. Um, But a lot of the work is based on live animal trapping. So they take these very long buckets. Imagine if you put five or six five gallon buckets together and you just had a trap door on one end of it. You throw in some meat in the back, some tuna, some lamb, whatever you can get cheap from your local butcher. Um, Devils are scavengers, right? So they smell that smells good. They'll go in the bucket to get a nice meal, um, the door will close and then we can go there and uh, collect our samples. We'll collect both tumor samples and then, you know, a sample from the devil as well, do a general health check and then let them go. You got a sample from the devil. That just sounds (laughs) funny to me. (laughs) You just dump them in a burlap sack and kind of then work their head out, collect all the samples you need. This is when they are farting a ton. Uh, You let them go. So you have to wear a gas mask and and gloves. (laughs) So you mentioned that, you know, this could potentially benefit humans and cancer. Is there any other connection to why people in central Florida should care about the Tasmanian devil on the other side of the world? I mean, yeah, there's a bunch of, of 
cancer-related properties that are interesting from this system, right? I mean, one, we don't want to wait to understand infectious cancers until humans have them, right? So we do not have infectious cancers yet. Everyone always asks me about HPV. Um, HPV is not an infectious cancer. It's a virus that sometimes can lead to the development of infectious cancer, of, sorry, of, of a cancer, but it's not an infectious cancer in and of itself. But we don't want to wait until we have a cancer that we are transmitting to one another to truly understand. We now have three examples in mammals, so it's not as if it's impossible. Um, the other thing about sort of the power of what's called comparative oncology or studying cancer in non-human systems is that obviously in, in people, if someone has cancer, ethically we have to treat it. We have to give them medicine and attempt to treat it. And that sort of limits our understanding about how cancer itself can evolve. Um, so by studying cancer in wild organisms like the Tasmanian mm. devil, we get a better, clear picture of how cancers actually evolve. And by transmitting from one individual to another, it's kind of like this really nasty metastatic cancer, right? We can imagine that going from one devil to the next is really analogous from going from, you know, my lung to a different organism if I had lung cancer. Um, so there, there's a whole bunch of information that can be gleaned about, about cancer in general. Um, you know, but as far as just, you know, conservation again we we know what we don't know which is that these ecosystems are, are exceptionally complex systems and they are all interwoven and, and that includes us and by removing these sort of large predators across the landscape that can have cascading effects we have no idea what those would be and how detrimental you know those would be to us we have some evidence that it's you know leading to the increase in you know some feral species like cats which can cause you know millions of dollars in damage um, to some industries there as well so you know, other than just the innate value in, in preserving nature, um, you know, there there are some definitely some applied benefits as well. Yeah, they're part of the food chain. And when they're gone, it's just going to be a giant cascade of we, whatever their thing is that there's their primary food source. Yep. We need the cleanup crew. Yes, we do. All right, Mark, you got a call. There we got Jimmy on the line. Hello, Jimmy. Hi, Jimmy. Hello. Hello. I don't think you want to talk to me because I got snake questions. Oh, that's okay. We can go back to the snakes. Yeah, we, we can <laughs> okay. move all over the place. I, I was just wondering if, like, um, the indigo is immune to the rattlesnake, and I believe the mongoose is immune to the cobra. Is there any kind of benefits from the chemistry of those animals? And I heard him mention biogeography, and I just wondered if Mark is familiar with Thomas Gillespie. He's the uh, head of biogeography at UCLA. And he was my biogeography teacher at oh, Very good. Cool. You know, I don't I don't know him personally. Um, but yes, animals are resistant to venom, right? I talked about the cotton rat example before. They're a hundred times more resistant uh, than lab mice. But yeah, predators of venomous snakes, things like mongooses or a bunch of possums in South America actually are resistant to snake venom because uh-huh. they really like eating venomous snakes. Um, same thing. It seems like king snakes and indigo snakes as well. Again, things that commonly feed on venomous snakes are immune. Venomous snakes will also exhibit some autoimmunity as well. So if a rattlesnake bites itself, it's somewhat resistant to its own venom. Um, that does happen sometimes if they're trying to bite a mouse or a rabbit and they miss and bite themselves instead. And yeah, those, those types of approaches can be, or sorry, those, those types of traits can be really useful for trying to understand how we can design, you know, maybe more effective antivenoms and things like that. And so, um, is the antivenom, is there a shelf life for that? Yeah, it's longer than what's listed, like for most things, than what the company tells you. Um, but yeah, it's typically just a couple of years. 
And there actually oh, was a recent time. shortage of coral snake antivenom because they stopped making it, I believe, back in the 80s. Uh, so University of Arizona and um, agrotoxins and a friend of mine, Jack Vicente, started making coral snake antivenom again more recently because we didn't have any approved batches that, that we could administer in the hospital. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for yep. calling. Yeah, thank you, Jimmy. All right, we just got about five minutes left, um, and we have another caller. Hi, Chris. Hi, good morning. Um, on uh, snake venom, uh, what do you know about uh, nicotine as uh, a remedy or as a preventative prophylactic treatment? Uh, and, you know, like nicotine patches and gums for blocking the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors from the neurotoxins in the snake venoms like the king cobra and crate snakes. Okay, is that the question? Is that the yeah, question, Chris? I learned, I learned, yes, I just want to point out I learned about this from Dr. Brian Artis. Uh, and also points out monoclonal antibodies uh, being from snake venom, which are treatments for COVID, which he says uh, induces these types of neurotoxins that are also found in the snake venom. So I did a search on nicotine. Okay, let's ask the venom. question of Mark. Isn't that why you're calling in yeah. to ask Mark the question? Yes. Thanks. Okay, great. Mark, what do you think about that? Yeah, so those those types of receptors um, are typically targeted by a lapid venom. So those are things like cobras, coral snakes, mambas, crates, uh, species that I typically don't work with. So I imagine that there there could be some e efficacy there, but I am totally comfortable saying that I am not entirely sure. Mm. Our, it's our, not your expertise. Mark, you got a couple more emails. One is from Dennis. He says, thanks for the guest. Tina and I lived in the Keys for decades and were involved in wildlife issues and island biogeography bio, bio is a very interesting subject. And then we got another email from Joe in Dover. And he asks, or says, in the mid-70s, my neighbor had a nine-foot eastern diamondback, and I heard that a rattlesnake can strike its body length. And oh. what do you think about that, Mark? Uh, so rattlesnakes can typically strike about half their body length, and um, the neighbor did not see a nine-foot rattlesnake. <laughs> <laughs> it eastern just seemed giant at the time, right? <laughs> the record eastern diamondback is eight. Um, most big adults, really big adults, are five feet. Um, I have seen, I've sampled since 2011 when I started working on Eastern Diamondbacks as a PhD student. So, you know, over a decade, I've probably caught four or 500 of these things throughout the entirety of the range. And I've only seen three animals that were legitimately over six feet long. Well, yeah, so yeah. everybody tells you they see a six or seven foot yeah. diamondback, I immediately subtract two, two and a half feet. Yeah. <laughs> it's Mark, like the fish when you catch a fish, right? I'm right there with you, Mark, because <laughs> I just did a presentation in uh, Venice this weekend and people came up to my carnivorous plants and they're like, oh, do you have any you know, that are three foot or, you know, could eat a human. Ah. I, re I remember them from my childhood. Oh, and my I gosh, said, no, you don't, play, because the right, Guinness the Book of World Record for last year was 2.2 inches right. for the Venus flytrap. <laughs> so you did not see a two foot Venus flytrap. In a dream. Yeah. In a dream. Oh, and a, a five foot diamondback rattlesnake, its head's as big as my fist and it's eating full grown rabbits. Oh, it is wow. a big, impressive animal. It is very easy to overestimate its size. Um, but no one has ever seen a nine-foot rattlesnake. <laughs> Did you see that one that size in the wild? Yeah. So actually, wow. um, the islands here, they, so Caladesi Island, Honeymoon Island, Anclo Key, they have 
very healthy populations of very large eastern diamondback rattles. My goodness. Are they protected uh, under some Endangered Species Act, or how's this working for them? So they are up for listing for consideration under the Endangered Species Act. So the way that that works is someone has to petition them to be listed. Uh, a group has petitioned that they be listed. So U.S. Fish and Wildlife is sort of engaging in their investigation now, and I've been involved with that as sort of the genetics expert um, on that team to try to make the determination about whether they warrant protection under the Endangered Species Act or not. And what do you think? Uh, do they? Um, yeah, I am going to keep my opinion to myself. Okay. To <laughs> Put you on the hot seat. <laughs> involved here. Um, <laughs> that's all I'll say about that. Right on. That's a good answer. Very politically correct. So, Mark, <laughs> we got a picture email from Eugene. We enjoyed our visit to Tasmania in May, we learned and saw about the devils and their disease at the Unzu near Hobart. And, and their picture is so sweet because cute. it doesn't have his mouth wide <laughs> open. It just has his little cute little eyes and his button nose. Yes. It's adorable. All right. Um, Mark, can you tell us how much you're teaching versus how much you're doing research? So I teach one course a semester. So not this semester. This semester I'm actually on paternal leave. Um, but... I typically teach one course a semester. So I teach herpetology in the fall. So that's reptiles and amphibians. Um, and then I teach disease biology in the spring. Um, most of what I do is research-based. Most of my contract is centered around research. And that, I think, is a misconception that a lot of people have about professors, especially at large universities, is that I mostly teach. And I do teach, but I mostly do research. So if people do come in contact with snakes, is there a place that they can call or uh, some place that they can look online if they take a photo or something like that that they can interact with it locally in there's Florida? A, there's a ton of Facebook groups now. But I mean, um, is there, I mean a real reliable situation. That's what I mean. Yeah, like, is so there no, a university thing or something? No, but there are a ton of Facebook groups that are vetted um, mm-hmm. and... Uh, that I know people have good success getting correct identifications with rather quickly. Um, and there's also a few apps, I think, that are currently being developed. Oh. The issue there is to that often to get a very good, clear photo of a snake, you have to get fairly close to it. Yes. And I discourage most people that are not comfortable identifying snakes themselves to, to not do, yes. not get close where, you know, an encounter can can be a negative encounter. We have so thoroughly enjoyed having you here. Uh, Thank you for being a part of our show today. Yes, thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Mr. Bill Grace, for doing everything. Everything. (laughs) (laughs) If you enjoyed this show and our weekly content, please go to WMNF.org and donating... Clicking that donate button and directing your donation to the Sustainable Living Show. Stay tuned in the next hour. You will hear WMNF Community Speaks with Mabili. And make sure that you tune in next Monday morning, especially at 11 for the next Sustainable Living Show. We'll be talking with Michelle James, and she is so fun about specific plant clubs, social media garden sites, and all around gardening involvement in the local community. And she'll be live in the studio. Yes, she's so fun. And we really encourage you to follow our Facebook page, Sustainable Living WNF, because we put all the updates and events on our upcoming shows there. And I'm Kenny Coogan. I'm Annie Ellis. And remember, if you're looking for someone to save the world, look in the mirror. Bye-bye. This is WMNF Tampa.